Welcome to Homestead Gardening in the Texas Gulf Coast with Kristen Howard. Today's podcast episode includes a special guest. Spencer from The Farm and the Table will be discussing companion planting with me today. Growing a natural garden using gardening techniques like companion planting is just one of the many tricks Spencer has up her sleeve to working smarter and not harder when it comes to caring for a home garden and providing food options grown at home for her family. I've learned so much from Spencer about companion planting that I thought she'd be the best person for you all to learn from, so you can also grow more quickly towards becoming an intuitive natural gardener. Companion planting is a great way to grow healthier plants, more abundant harvests, but with less time and money spent by you in the long run. There are so many benefits to companion planting, but Spencer and I recognize that many new and even veteran gardeners get overwhelmed trying to learn and incorporate more confusing gardening techniques unless they are simplified. So today we're keeping things light and fun with an easy introduction into the benefits of companion planting and some hot tips on how you can start companion planting right away. I really appreciate you joining me for this podcast. This is kind of a fun episode uh, topic. Companion planting is something that I've been asked to talk about a lot and the topic's a little complicated. And so I want to use this episode as a soft introduction to understanding kind of what's the point and what's the benefit and then generally some ways to use this. So I appreciate you um, coming on so we can bounce ideas off each other and discuss. Of course. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, So I'd love for us to kind of start off with the generalization of what companion planting actually is. Um, To me, this is sort of just a way for our gardens to be biodiverse, you know, different plants in instead of kind of the commercialized row cropping setting and not just a little bit of everything in the garden, but very strategic way of planting one thing here and one thing there for biological pest control, but then just general crop yield improvement. I mean, what what can you add to that? You're absolutely right. I mean, it's all of those things. For me, I feel like almost like there's two kinds of companion planting. There's like somebody's, you know, pop pop had a bumper crop of peas one year and now the whole internet has <laughs> thinks that they need to plant peas with, you know, whatever he had right next to it. I feel like there's that and I feel like what I feel like when you're researching is more commonly referred to as interplanting, which is what a lot of what you just said. So it's adding the biodiversity. It's, you know, planting more than one crop to you know, diversify your root structure, your plant structure, how much photosynthesis goes into the soil and things like that, which for me, that's where the biggest, I mean, aha moment in my garden happened was when I started focusing on more of the interplanting companion planting for a specific goal. And that's, I mean, just made the overwhelming difference in what I've been able to accomplish as a gardener. So what was the biggest difference between before your garden before and you as a gardener before companion planting and after you started implementing these strategies that we'll talk about, what was the biggest difference that you saw or what happened that was so different? So for me, I mean, yields and all of those things aside, the biggest thing for me was time. So I started getting into companion planting when I started having more kids. So the amount of physical time that I could put into my garden it decreased, but the amount of mouths that I needed to be feeding <laughs> is now increasing. So it's taken back my time. So as far as pest management, I spend, I mean, probably 75% less time as far as like hand picking, dealing with pests, pest destruction, replanting, all of those things. And then, I mean, then there's the increased yields that we can talk about, right? So Um, I don't, I'm just kind of getting into companion planning for soil building because I'm starting in a a new in-ground plot, but so I'm using it for those reasons. Now, um, when I started, that wasn't my main concern. It was mainly, you know, pests. And then I, I love the beauty in it too. When, to me, when there's this interplanted garden, there's like this charm and this whimsy. And to me, that's just like, that's what speaks to my soul as a gardener. Okay. You said whimsy. Okay. So uh, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I may have already told the story some time a year ago in my podcast, but there was a, there's this architecture um, 
class that we all have to do at AM and we have to pick a word that represents us. And I picked whimsical because, oh, how cute. <laughs> well, I kind of a jerk. And so I like sarcastic wasn't a word I was allowed to choose. So I was like, fine, it'll be whimsical. And, and so I've always thought that though, ever since that class, I was like, how can I add whimsy to my own life? And the garden is one of those places where inner yeah. planting created that I'm, I call it magic. You know, you just have yes, so it much texture, so is. much different types of greens that maybe you don't even recognize until you start pairing them against each other. It's very fun. It's beautiful. And I have more of a year round green in my garden. Um, there's very few bare areas. You know, it's it's rare at least, uh, which is really fun. But, you, you know, you, you touched on all the different com uh, complexities of companion planting. Mm -hmm. You talked about soil building. You talked about um, crop yield increases. You talked about pest management and time savings. And I think that's where people don't realize how beneficial companion planting is. There's so many layers to it and so many opportunities and most of them are missed and that's okay. I think when you start companion planting, you have to find one aha moment, one aha piece. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was pest control and saving time. Um, me too. And I didn't understand. I didn't want to spend all my time IDing pests. Is this one good? Is this one bad? I don't have right. time. I don't care. <laughs> I just don't care to know all about entomology. Um, it's not interesting to me. So when you have to know so much science to have a home garden, things get a little out of control, right? It's just too much. So companion planting really does help with with so many of those things you talked about, and we'll touch on all of it. I want to make uh, or I want to share a fun fact that really blew my mind. Um, a few years ago, I learned that we have over a million known insect species, mm -hmm. um, but only or not only less than 1% are actually considered significant pests. So it begged the question to me, I, th I thought it had to be like half, I didn't know. Um, it begged the question to me why we're all using pest control. We're using pesticides, which kills most things without being discerning um, right. when we're really, we don't have that many pests. Um, mm -hmm. Something else that I learned taking an entomology course was that uh, most pest populations can ma manage themselves because we have a lot mm -hmm. of good insects. There's a tipping point to an overpopulation of any pest or, you know, good and bad insects, even good insects can maybe overeat their area. Um, if you've ever tried to grow caterpillars on dill, like they'll run out, <laughs> right, mm -hmm. uh, of food. And so there's always a tipping point, but with our bad pests, you can usually track that tipping point. And if you're patient, you can wait to intervene. And then Absolutely. there, and then there's strategies you can use, which we're not going to talk about today. Um, but yeah, I think that that's great. So one thing that um, I've had people ask me before is, why do so few people companion plant? Why don't we see this? Why do we still see row crops and big ag and all that stuff? I mean, um, you know, we're talking about time savings, but realistically, it, this is, we're already, we're already spending all that time planting. I think people get a little bit confused about, you know, big ag uses machinery and they, you know, big ag has a second job, right? Farming's a yeah. small piece of their day. Yeah. <laughs> so who, who is this really for? And, and, you know, can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, to be honest, I, I do think it's for everyone. I don't know if I've told you this, but the area that I live in is the big ag hub of, I mean, we're a global producer. Um, California Central Valley does, I mean, almost the vast majority of the world's almonds, stone fruit, and then you go slightly outside of our area and it's, you know, the berries and things that thrive in cooler weather in California. Um, so I'm surrounded by big ag. I don't see it as far as pest control here. Um, although a lot of the cities that I'm reading to determine these, you know, kind of trap plants is a, a method of companion planting, which we'll talk about. Um, I'm seeing them in university studies in commercial ag applications. So I feel like they're starting to pop up and gain merit as a way that they can use it, but not so much to be completely organic, more just to target the pest population so then they don't have to spray the entire you know cash crop um but for us is you know home back backyard gardeners and homesteaders I, that's the place that this type of companion planting is really going to thrive and just knock your garden out of the park because when you can take whatever goal you're trying to achieve and i understand for most people it will be pest management you can not let those population 
uh, pest populations get out of whack. Like you said, that tipping point, most people see an aphid is probably, you know, the most common example that I get asked about. And they'll see one aphid and they'll freak out that they need to treat their whole garden. But when you do that, you're taking away food for beneficial insects. And then that's when the beneficial insects don't have food, they're going to leave and go somewhere else because they're hungry, right? So when we inevitably tip our populations out of whack ourselves by trying to intervene and control that one aphid that we were, you know, so freaked out about um, where we could just really let it go and nature will work itself out. Right. And I don't know how many people are hunters or know about, you know, animal populations, but the same thing would go for, for that. You know, you, mm -hmm. if you increase uh, the population of wolves, you know, the predators, for example, in a certain population, then you're going to have more of the prey get eaten and you're going to have an imbalance, right? So there's always yep. a, a balance to, um, to nature. And the question is, as gardeners, you know, are we responsible for manipulating as much as we right. think we are? No, we're no. not. We should not be doing as much, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, fine tinkering, right? Um, yeah. put, put the pencil down, the test is done, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what we need That's to start true. thinking about. So, um, and, and back to that uh, large scale ag comment. Um, yes, I think in tests, you know, commercially, uh, universities are studying how mm -hmm. crops can be, crop yields can increase by reduced pest control um, with pesticides. And what I've seen is that they're having a hard time justify justifying the cost of the trap crop in the total profits. And that's where I think there's still some issue uh, that they need to figure out, <laughs> Big Ag needs to figure out how to make it work, right? Yeah, uh, <laughs> they need to figure out a lot, <laughs> a few things. <laughs> figure it out, all right? So let's talk about for home production for, you know, our, our audience. Let's talk about some big chunks. So um, the ways that we can use companion planting are to attract bugs. And yes, mm -hmm. sometimes we want to attract good and bad insects. Um, we want to repel insects and other pests, rabbits, for example, mm -hmm. and we can use um, other plants to either form a barrier or a canopy. We can use them as a shield, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. And then we also have situations where plants can benefit each other or they can do the exact opposite, right? And they mm -hmm. can be a really bad neighbor um, next to other plants. They're very selfish, right? And they'll take up a little more space than they should. So we'll talk about those big chunks today. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, and it doesn't have to be examples, but just kind of the theory behind attracting uh, insects, both good and bad. So for backyard gardeners, that's, I think, where I would recommend people start. Um, people don't realize how many insects, like you said, are beneficial. So like a lot of times I hear bugs referred to as good, bad, or neutral. And the amount that's actually bad is what you said, like it's a minimal minuscule in the scheme of things. Most bugs are going to be neutral. And then we have our beneficial insects, like most commonly people think of ladybugs, for example. Um, and I, I think it's so hard and so misleading for gardeners when they go into like a, you know, a gardening store and there's ladybugs to purchase on the shelf. And you think you can just control your problem by releasing these ladybugs. But if you bring these ladybugs home, and just like if you invite someone over to your house, you know, like if you don't put out a nice hors d'oeuvre, offer them a beverage, right? Like you want to make your backyard this inviting place for these ladybugs to stay. Otherwise, they're just going to go to your neighbor's house. So when we think about uh, companion... I, hold, hold on. Have you ever had a guest come over and then just ditch you and be like, no, I'm going to the, see what the neighbor has to offer in the fridge. This is ridiculous. <laughs> no, but I hear what you're saying. No, I, we always have beer. <laughs> but I hear what you're saying. Like if you, if you, if you bring home yeah. a stray dog, but you don't have any food or water that dog's yes. going to try to get the heck out of Dodge. They're, they don't, they don't yes. care that they've been offered the home. They don't have all the resources, right? Yes, exactly. So that's where I would recommend that people, if you're looking to get into companion planting, that's the easiest no-fail way. All you have to do is plant some extra herbs, let them flower, and you're, I mean, halfway there. Like you've created a big step by doing something so minuscule in your garden that as time goes on, you're going to continue to reap these benefits of. And in the case of, for example, um, Houston, and maybe in your climate too, um, coming from, are you in 9B, right, yes. roughly? Yeah. yeah. So in, in these warmer climate zones, we do have some year-round growing potential, and we do have mm -hmm. year-round, for example, flowers. 
Yes. It helps to know what your wildflower population is to kind of fill in some gaps that are more difficult and think about those more challenging times of year. So for example, when um, maybe herbs for me don't grow as well in July and August when it's just crazy hot, but zinnias mm -hmm. do, you know, yes. and there are a lot of other, um, my African marigolds kind of hang in there a little bit longer. And then in the cool season, um, you can definitely let your um, warm climate plants hang in there as long as possible. You can either, even kind of let some of your cool season stuff bolt because we're a little too warm. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that happens. And I'll leave broccoli or uh, lettuce flowering for months, even though I kind of hate that it's still there. It fills yeah. in a gap and there's, there's nothing wrong with just helping things right. along by not touching it. That, that's, that's the whole right. point is if you have something there, just leave it alone. And that's how mm -hmm. much interaction you have to do to be a successful companion planter, right? Right. Less work. The less work, the better. <laughs> so what about attracting those bad bugs that, that less than 1% um, that people get really nervous about? What have you experienced with that? So I would say most backyard gardeners probably have that one bug that they know what it is. It's the bane of their existence. And it's probably something with less natural predators, probably a Japanese beetle or squash bug or squash vine borer. It's a larger pest that's more ambulatory. If you've been gardening for more than a couple of years, you know what it is, right? That's where I would say start doing your research as what is a companion plant for that specific bug. You by no means need to companion plant for every pest, you know, like so-called quote unquote pest that you will face. Most of it will happen naturally as you're, you know, working in different flowers and vegetables in, a, in one little setting. So that's going to take care of most of it for you. But if you know what that one pest is, start there by looking up what I would call trap plants for that pest. And then because it usually is the things that are more ambulatory, I would recommend you plant it on the outskirts of your garden. Um, and that's, it's not going to repel or get rid of the pest. What it's going to do is target that pest to that one location. So you can then manually control it. Right. And in that, in that situation, you are expected to manually control. I mean, you're not supposed to just yes. say, have fun. And then when you're done with that plant, move on to the ones I want to keep. The whole I mean, point, I totally have done that. Yeah, me too. No, me too. <laughs> um, and sometimes you can accidentally attract these plants uh, or these pests by leaving a plant too long in the garden. So it is helpful to know mm -hmm. a little bit. For example, I tend to leave mustard a little too long and then I end up with an overpopulation when it's a little hot. And I actually had to do some pest control management this year that I didn't plan on. And I could have just pulled the mustard early and that would have solved my problem. So a little education on, on for your own garden is very helpful. Um, but when it comes to repelling, which is a different, the, different than attracting, uh, there are a lot of repelling methods that we can do. And I think that's probably what most gardeners think about with companion planting is how right. do I just, you know, put a big no enter sign in here, right? So uh, explain repelling a little bit. So I, I think it's really interesting that we all refer to it as repelling because that's not really what, <laughs> what we're doing. What we're doing when we're trying to repel a pest is we're trying to mask the smell of the host plant. So say I have aphids on my tomatoes. I want to plant something that smells more than the tomatoes because the insects can smell. So if we, I know dill, for example, is a common one. So if aphids are going to come in and they're going to smell the dill, they're not going to smell the tomato in theory, and they're going to move on elsewhere. Okay. So what we're saying is this is a middle school gymnasium bathroom right after track <laughs> practice. And every girl has a uh, body spray that they yeah. just loaded up. They didn't go shower, right? They yeah, this bath and body works, it up. Right? <laughs> so that's that's what I'm hearing. Essentially, our repellent yes. theory is, is we're really yes. just doing a masking. We're doing a quick cover. Um, and yes. we're hoping that that our, our pest is a little confused and picks But it does wrong. work. Yeah, that body spray works. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it smells different. Yeah, after. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, so yeah, the, 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 some some of these masking odors will prevent the pest from even coming near. They're so offensive. Um, right. But yeah, it's mainly just a, a confusion of the nose, of the nostrils. Yes. Or whatever they have. I don't know what insects have for 
smelling, but that, something like that. But yes, exactly. <laughs> I know for um, rabbits specifically, since we're mainly talking insects today, I'll just mention like rabbits in Dallas, all of my clients in Dallas have a rabbit problem. It's a huge problem. Mm -hmm. You can plant almost nothing um, and they're going to nibble on, on everything possible, even in a drought, even if they don't want to. But people will use marigolds, lavender, um, or they'll use essential oil sprays and, you know, spray some young plants to prevent. And it works. It really mm -hmm. does work. Uh, I thought it was kind of an old wives tale, but it's all about proximity to the plant too. I think that um, these odorific, <laughs> these stinky plants, if they need to be close by the plant you're trying to protect, they can't just be around. Um, yes. I think that's another misleading thing. Some people will have some of these companion plants in a pot in their backyard and think that'll take care of everything. But I've been seeing it's um, planting within like 18 inches is more the goal or barrier planting would be yeah. a good technique. So that would be a strategy that I would refer to as interplanting. So where I gave the example earlier of planting um, something for the squash bugs on the outside of your garden as a trap plant, the smaller the insect, the closer and tight knit, you really want to get those companion plants. So, and a lot of it too, for things we can get to grow up, train up, we can plant at the base. Um, and you can even get, I mean, I use total ground cover as my weed management strategy. <laughs> so you could get as crazy as you want with this, right? Like as long as we're not so close, we're, you know, choking out things, plant it as close as you can. I would say 18 inches max. And exactly. That's a maximum uh, distance. Yeah. And so um, I think a lot of people here, I think there's a fad called the square foot gardening method. I don't know what it is, yeah. but I'm assuming <laughs> it's what we're talking about where we're just trying to make sure every square inch is yeah. covered with something. Mm -hmm. um, so it's the same same theory there. And I, I totally agree with that. I think you can have, um, when you have pest management and you still have some airflow, you can definitely plant to the extreme in a small mm -hmm. plot. Right. Um, so another method of companion planting is like a visual or a physical barrier. Um, mm -hmm. Can you expand upon that idea? Yeah, that, I mean, I would say depends what your goal is with that one. So I know people use like a companion plant of hedgerows for more things like grasshoppers. Um, even I think I gave the example the other day on Instagram of cilantro as a hedgerow for cut flowers um, as a method of companion planting, which is also great. Um, it really just depends on what the insect is, or uh, I would say almost you could use that as a disease management strategy too, uh, depending on your climate depends what it is for us to go to that specific kind of hedgerow. Yeah. And, and when it comes to barriers, um, there are advantages to not having a barrier too. Uh, for mm -hmm. example, with roses, if we're talking about uh, a fungal infection, we want to have a lot of airflow. You know, we want to make right. sure that we don't plant under a shady canopy because we fung fungus will spread in, um, right moisture. So we want those leaves to be able to dry. So there are, uh, there's the opposite, but we can also use, for example, a canopy to successfully grow a crop, um, into a longer season. So for a lot of mm -hmm. my plants, I use canopies for, um, for seedlings or for potted plants so that when we have really high wind load or, um, storms with heavy droplets that gets dissipated and it's not as much of a strain on my plants. Um, they're more likely to survive that or just shade, you know, I'm able to get a crop, maybe go a month or two longer or pull, I call it pulling a crop through summer. If I'm trying to get a double crop from peppers, then I'll use my trees as a way to right. manage those um, problems of my geography. But yeah, it, the soft-bodied insects um, that are lightweight can be carried by wind. So some of these barriers mm -hmm. are going to be really useful or sometimes useful, not always, sometimes right. useful in diminishing populations that can be carried that way. Mm -hmm. I've actually heard people do that, like a, a, a very tall hedgerow too, for seed saving. So for pollen and things that are transferred by wind, I've heard of people planting a hedgerow in between to cut down on cross-pollination. Isn't that interesting? I've never actually done that, but I think it's super plant nerdy. <laughs> so I, I really like that. And, and yeah, I think that um, I've, I've had a lot of gardeners ask me when I've seed saved, well, how are you making sure that you're not accidentally cross-pollinating two different varieties? And right. I go, well, actually I've rarely planted 
multiple squash, you know, I, I plant one and then I plant the next one, right? So that they don't have a crossover. Same with the beans. And then I realized I didn't with some of my beans and I had a cross. I accidentally uh, made a mistake with some of my beans last year um, and had these weird little things pop up. And I was like, oh, those do not look like my uh, heirloom <laughs> seeds that I wanted to save. But it's a mistake that's easy to fix. Um, but for most of my crops, I just grow one one year and grow one the next year and solve the problem. But that, of course, is going to take 10 years for me to save seeds, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, and I'm the exact opposite with my like 50 kinds of squash and pumpkins <laughs> that are all going to go get planted together right now. Luckily, it's like all going to be deliciously edible. Well, the, yeah. and with, with you know, when we're talking about intervening by manually, you don't have to manually pollinate any of these plants. There's very few yeah. that you have to manually manipulate. But if you're saving heirlooms, you can absolutely uh, hand pollinate your squash just the way that you want it and do a little baggie over it or do a little pollen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's easy to do that. So, um, the last little chunk, and then we can kind of talk about everything in a in a more general way, more broad way, and in more detail. The last couple chunks are good and bad plant neighbors. So plants working with or against other plants. Um, would you rather talk about the good or the bad? <laughs> Not the bad. <laughs> Not the bad. <laughs> so let's talk about the idea of, of plants working together first. Okay. <laughs> so... I actually, this is a, such a broad topic of things that they can go. It's hard to, to narrow it down. Um, if people are looking for maybe like a recommendation of what a good companion plant is, I would say the best kind of all over the board will help everyone would be flowering herbs interplanted with whatever you have, right? You're not going to screw that up. There's I, not going to be any bad companions. You don't have to worry about anything. I think the only bad one I've seen. I don't know if this is true or not. I think fennel may, you may have to look up where you can plant fennel. I think sometimes it's not friendly. Fennel's, fennel's not friendly for anyone. But I don't consider, <laughs> yeah, I don't consider fennel an herb. That's just a mistake right. for me. Yes. <laughs> fennel is like, to me, fennel is the only plant that is, I, I can't say bad, but that's the most finicky for sure. Like you read anything about companion planting, you're going to get fennel is not a friend. Yeah, it's it's a tough it's a tough one. But I mean, the, the whole the whole point of uh, plants working together is that either they can share root space, they can share resources, right. and they don't compete. Or mm -hmm. if they're good companions, or even better companions, then you have a preferred crop, and then you have support. So you have something mm -hmm. that's, for example, nitrogen fixing that can right. have that beneficial bacteria that's going to colonize and um, extract nitrogen and then make it bioavailable to the crop you actually want to grow there. So you kind of have like, um, you have two crops and both are gonna do fine. You're not gonna have one be eaten by pests or good bugs. You're not gonna have um, any attracting happening except that one is basically lifting the other one up, right? Um, so right. those are the two ways that I like to companion plant with other plants. Um, which is which leads me to the the bad plant neighbors. I think that's more fun. I think it's more fun to know about <laughs> the bad plant neighbors. Just because um, in my whimsical garden idea, yeah. I thought it'd be so much fun to walk through the sunflowers. Well, mm -hmm. we're we're talking bad plant neighbors. Sunflower is an example of who you don't really want to plant with your crops. You know, maybe they're a backdrop plant or they're. Uh, an, an edge plant that we're using as a physical barrier or something like that, but they can be really naughty. They, they like their space. They like things just so. And so some of our bad, bad plant neighbors, um, I think you use this word in your, um, Instagram the other day and I'll probably botch the pronunciation, but, um, I do too. I know. <laughs> yeah. Allelopathic or so they, they're going to be releasing chemicals, right. To yes. ward off other plants. And the trouble with those it's not so much that they're a problem today while they're planted. They're a problem mm -hmm. later when all this right. comes in the soil too. So you kind of have to right. think through your naughty plants and say, okay, what can I not plant here next year too? And make right. sure that you know, when you're, in, when you're um, swapping rows or you're um, rotating, sorry, when you're yeah, rotating, crop rotating crops, um, you have to think about those naughty neighbors too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you planted the year before. Yeah, those are really interesting um, 
cucumbers is another one. I think that's where the example that you were talking about. So I actually found that one out the hard way. I, I am like the queen of ignoring all plant spacing rules. So I planted cucumbers on a trellis on a hog panel and I was like, oh, they're going to grow, grow up, you know, it'll be fine. So I planted like one every other square. Well, they were fine for a while and then they all died. And it's like, okay, my cucumbers were competing with each other on any other plant spacing, which would have been, you know, typically fine. They have those, and I'm going to butcher the word too, the allelopathic, you know, principles that just choke out each other, either themselves or what else you planted in that same area. I, so I knew about sunflowers. I knew that they weren't very kind to their neighbors, but I read when I was exploring uh, companion planting a year ago, I read that you can plant cucumbers with sunflowers and they'll grow up the stalk and it'll be so fun. I thought, well, I don't really know about that, but I'm going to try it anyways. And so I, I guess I picked two allelopathic plants to plant right, right. next to each other. Like <laughs> not, but that's, that's the, the hardest thing I found about, uh, or the hardest learning curve with companion planting has been going on the internet and finding conflicting information. And, right. and that's been a so real true. challenge so to get true. over. I have not found a single resource that has been fantastic, which is why in, in later episodes, um, hopefully within the next month or two, I'll have some companions that I've researched to death that I know are going to work right. But I mean, the amount of research I've done has been ridiculous and and half the time it contradicts yeah so can i give you a tip on that i don't yeah. know if, i'm sure you've done this given your background but for listeners because i had the same thing you research i mean two articles and you're going to get two different answers and it that just drives me absolutely nuts <laughs> when you're looking for companions if, especially for pests or disease or whatever your specific goal is type in say trap plants for squash bugs extension article or look for an EDU site. And then from there, you're gonna get a list of all the major agriculture studies. Look for the one that's closest to your area, so the closest college. And then that will give you not only advice specifically tailored for your region, but that's actual scientific advice that will have a study. It will tell you the percentage of time it worked. I mean, it's not like we talked about earlier, you know, somebody's pat pat had a bumper crop and then that's why we're all doing this thing a hundred years later. A one-off. It's yeah. actual, yeah, there's, there truly is a science backed study to all of this companion planting. And I mean, there is so much that we haven't studied about companion plants, but that's where I would start. It takes <laughs> out the overwhelm. That That's a really good idea. That's a great point. You know, start with, um, I mean, I'm a blogger, but you should be careful because you right. never know. I'm the same way. Yeah. yeah I, I wrote a blog 10 years ago and I had a, it was a, about um, a Texas sage plant and um, it was a variety that hadn't come to market yet, but was really promising. Well, guess what? It never came to market. And I still had, I had somebody contact me a couple years ago and they said, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I found your article, which I'd forgotten about. It was buried in my, it's 10 years old now. Um, and I, I use that in my design. I go, well, you'll never be able to buy it. I don't know. <laughs> you, should, <laughs> you, know you should do a little more homework than just reading my blog. Um, but yeah, b bloggers do their best at the time that they wrote. Right. And then maybe they learn. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like neem oil. That's a great <laughs> example of that. Neem oil was, I mean, two years ago on Instagram, neem oil was the bee's knees. And now everybody's backtracking because we've had, you know, such new research come out that neem oil is damaging to other things, which I mean, who would have thought, but. <laughs> um, so the only thing I know about neem oil is because we're such a hot climate, um, I can rarely use it because it's too warm to use it. So I've, I've owned neem oil. I've used it maybe once or twice. The truth is I found better ways. They didn't cost me any money to manage whatever pest I was dealing with with the neem oil. So what have you seen that's damaging? I'm just curious. It's off topic, but. Uh, native bees. I think oh. is where they're starting to see that it's not that good of a thing, which I mean, most backyard gardeners probably aren't using it effectively. Yeah. So I think there's, there's Over that, which makes sense. Problems. Yes. Yeah. 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 I know I've been watching on Instagram much longer than I've been sharing garden information. And that was a big thing. It was like, Oh, if you have one aphid spray neem, well, 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I just like rolled and my that, eyes and shook my head. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I am an advocate for a hard spray with the hose, with the water hose. Just right. Just beat the hell out of it. Um, that's Anim's like little model. Beat the hell out of whatever <laughs> school we're playing football against that year, or that uh, week. So we beat the hell out of our plants with a water hose, and problems are magically solved. No chemicals. Yeah. No worries. Yeah. <laughs> Do it again tomorrow. You know, there's some. Yeah. Still there. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so I, I, for me personally, in my own garden, what I've had a lot of my family say, because I don't have a single family member or a friend before I made friends on the internet. I don't have a single family member or friend that will garden with me or, you know, do any, any little bit of gardening. And I've been perplexed by that because I, I feel like maybe I don't set a very good example, but the truth is the misconception is that it takes too much time to garden and, right. and maybe they see my failures, which I don't see as failures. I just see as like fun. Um, I'm the same way. Yeah, yeah. I get it. <laughs> um, and, and, and you know, maybe the successes are too small for them to see the value, but what I've seen and what I've been told is, well, I, I don't have time to garden or use much. You must spend so much time gardening right. you have all this free time i go i don't have that much free time um but the truth is I, I i maybe spend 15 minutes a day in the winter and that's pushing it i probably am only out there every other day to spot check my garden for an out of control pest or a problem usually i'm just looking for like something weird like an armadillo hole <laughs> <laughs> and in the summer all of my time is spent harvesting i don't really yeah. tend to my garden as much as i and busy using the gifts from the garden. So this only happened after companion planting, after interplanting and increasing my biodiversity in the garden. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to, I'd like us to talk more about all of these big benefits, all of these time-saving benefits and what they really mean. So people understand maybe what they're missing out on or what, what they're not perceiving right. correctly about gardening, correct? Right. Gardening well, I guess. Yeah, no, I totally understand. I'm the same way as far as you know, the amount of time put in it, I, there's no extra time. Right. And I know the gardening recommendation is you're supposed to check your garden every 15 minutes in the morning. Right. Like to be honest with three kids, four and under, I might go two weeks without going to my garden, <laughs> you know, like I am on their schedule, not my gardens and my garden has to work for me. I don't, you know, I don't work for my garden. So incorporating these companion printing principles has done most of that work for me. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, once at the beginning of the season, once everything's transplanted and irrigation is set up, I just walk away essentially. I mean, maybe once every couple of weeks I'll check, um, like I know the squash bugs are coming when, you know, this, the weather starts to warm up. So that's the main thing I'll look for. Um, and that's really the only thing that will tear down my garden at this point. But I know that I've companion planted for it. I have a full-blown pest management companion plant strategy for that one bug. <laughs> but once it's in the ground, I mean, I'm out. <laughs> so, but that's only possible because of companion planting. So I know exactly where my problem's going to start. I can almost track it because I know the plants that I've layered in a specific design because of this pest, right? So I know how it's going to go and I, I'm not reinventing the wheel every time I garden. It, it just repeats itself and works for itself. So I've spent, I mean, a couple seasons now focusing on beneficial insect populations. So I don't even look, treat anything for aphids because the ladybugs are going to do that for me. And um, even if I see it, you know, okay, great. I'm not going to do anything about it. Um, right. So I think it, it does take a while. Obviously, there's a learning curve with everything, especially gardening. Um, but once you really just throw yourself into the companion planting and almost just like release the pressure, I think that's when it, it clicks. And once you give it a little time to work for itself without you interfering, like as humans, we have this desire to control. And when you try to control nature, it, that's when you have to spend time in the garden because you're trying to override something that wasn't designed to be that way. Have you ever seen uh, Office Space, the movie Office Space? 
Mm-mm. Okay. So it's a, it's like a cult comedy and it's from, I think it's 20 years old. Um, basically in the first scene in, in you know, people j- use this as a joke all the time. In the first scene, you have the person trying to get to work in traffic and, you know, the left lane's moving and the middle lane stop where he is. And he jumps into the left lane and the left lane stops and the you know, middle lane starts moving. And that's how I feel. Sounds like driving uh, in California. <laughs> that's how it, yeah. Well, <laughs> the movie's set in Dallas. And I'm like, yep, that's Dallas. <laughs> well, um, so, but that to me, that's that's how it feels when I intervene in the garden. If yeah. you just sit in the middle lane and you're like, I know we're going to move forward. It's just not at, at my pace, but everybody's mm-hmm. going to get to the stoplight at the same time. Right. Yeah. I feel like that's kind of how, how um, gardening works. Sit mm-hmm. in your lane and just hang out and don't worry about it. You'll all get to work. <laughs> but if you yeah. jump lanes it's very likely that the person you sat behind is going to get to work faster or we're all right. still just going to get there at the same time, but you put a lot of energy and frustration and stress onto mm-hmm. your shoulders that you didn't need to. Um, right. Yeah. For me, companion planting, we already talked about kind of how beautiful it is, all the different textures, all the different colors. Um, for me in my garden, one thing that I did not prioritize was flowers. I am allergic. My husband's allergic. I can't have flowers in the house. And so I thought, why would I grow flowers? What a waste of my time. What a waste of my energy. Well, I was sort of also trying to grow flowers that are really difficult to care for. And mm-hmm. when I switched to just a few main things that were super easy, hands off by me, um, throw out the seeds at the right time, walk away. If it doesn't work great, yep. who cares? No one cares. That's <laughs> the truth. Two mm-hmm. bucks down the drain. We can all live. Um, I started changing the way that I thought about everything about my garden. Um, I changed the way I thought about failure and I didn't mm-hmm. record it as failure. I recorded it as learning or, oh, well, you know, if I can right. learn, if I couldn't figure out the why it didn't work, um, I didn't worry about it. Um, but usually you can, when you have failure, you're more likely to learn and remember than mm-hmm. if you have success. Right. No, that's not true. <laughs> that's the only so, reason I know about this. Stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so you and I joked earlier, um, Hopefully you don't mind me sharing this about (laughs) tomato hornworms. And there's a point in every gardener's gardening career where we baby a bad pest. Yeah. And you and I both kill a good one. And you and I both were like, oh, poor tomato hornworm, you little caterpillar. You might be something good. We'll leave you. We'll baby you. We'll take care of you. Right. And as you devastate our garden. (laughs) And, And now we acknowledge that, okay, that is one of the less than 1% bad pests, you you don't get to have a home here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think we're, we've all been there. We've all like felt guilty about killing something or whatever. Right. Um, and, and we don't need to feel that way either. But if we hadn't failed with that one bug, we may not have even realized it was sneaking yes. around our tomatoes year after year. Yeah. No, like I can't even tell you how many baby ladybugs, because I don't know if you've seen, I know, I'm sure you have, but like listeners, if you've never seen a baby ladybug, they're creepy looking. Oh, I've killed them. They, no, me too. Oh, I, I think squished I squished them. like 30 yeah. of them. And I was like, oh shoot, I guess I should Google what this is. And then it's like, oh my God, I just killed a whole bunch of baby ladybugs. I, what am I doing? Last year I had a bunch, it was a type of, of the, the lady beetle, the, one of the okay kinds. I don't know which kind of exact, if, I don't know if it was exactly a ladybug or not, but whatever it was, the larva is super creepy. And, um, it was on my citrus and I was like, uh-uh, yeah, I am not losing uh-huh. my citrus tree. This dang thing is so mean to me in the first place. Well, I was heading to Dallas for Christmas. Um, so this is a year ago. I should have known what I was doing, but I just hadn't seen this one <laughs> thing yeah. before in the larva stage. And I bring my husband over. I'm like, oh my gosh, should I spray it? I don't want to do it, but like, I, I got to get on a plane. Like, I've got to go. And he was, he was just taking me to the airport. He wasn't staying, but I knew if I didn't take care of it, he wasn't going to do anything when I left. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, what are we going to do? And when you make a rash decision, when you're stressed and you're in a hurry and you're not thinking, you always make the wrong one. So I took my thumb and I just smushed him. And I was like, done. It's done. Whatever (laughs) happens after this is not, not, I don't have to worry about it because I don't need to care. And I had taken a zoomed in picture. It was so small. I couldn't see them really well with my eye. And on the plane or when I was waiting for the plane, I looked up this and I felt so bad. Yeah. We've all done it. <laughs> and 
I was like, shoot, is there a way to spin this? There's no way to spin this. I just screwed up. <laughs> You're a ladybug murderer. I, yeah, I'm not a murderer. <laughs> but, but, you know, through that failure, when I see that really right. cool, now it's a cool larva, not a creepy larva. When I see that cool yeah. larva, you know, I can say, okay, you can stay. You're not going to suck yeah. everything out of my citrus and we're going to be fine. It'll be all right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So on the top of, of biodiversity, I like to think, so there's different ways to think about it. So we can think about biodiversity in the vegetable garden as just different textures, mm -hmm. um, different uh, plant families is very helpful. One, one mistake that I make sometimes is that I have too much of one plant family. So going into the warm season, too many from the squash family is a common one. And then mm -hmm. sometimes too many from the, oh, I'm just blanking. Uh, what's the tomatoes family? nightshade family yeah yeah those two are big ones that i have to be really careful about because if you even if you have what the squashes plus the gourds the cucumbers if you, you know i can have yeah. 10 different varieties of plants in my garden all from the same family all susceptible to similar problems right. um and we can really have an out of control situation very very quickly with that many mm -hmm. plants that for me biodiversity is sort of about, um, I think it's easier to think about it as textural changes because each of these families have different leaf types, leaf shapes, mm -hmm. and sometimes that visual aid, and unfortunately this is a podcast, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's hard to see that. But when we're talking about these different plant families and biodiversity, I think it's easier to talk about, talk about texture sometimes when you don't have yeah. education. Um, what, would you, what, what would you add to that? Definitely, yeah, like texture, height, color. Yeah. Um, so I'm the same way. Like, I mean, there's a ton of squash, pumpkins, all of it. And I mean, a lot of people in backyard gardens don't have the space to spread it out the way we would love to. Right. So in my squash patch, we'll do like a three sisters kind of moment in there. And then I'm going to put almost like a ground cover. Um, so I'll have low growing herbs, low growing beneficial insect blends, um, nasturtium climbing all over the ground. So that's going to be my ground cover and then I'll have the squash and then the flowers can kind of grow upright through. Um, and that's going to incorporate all three of those. We're going to have different textures, different colors, different heights, and then inadvertently will all be different root structures. Um, and that's going to just take care of it all. <laughs> and uh, Three Sisters is a planting method yeah. that incorporates the companion of good plant neighbors. Um, so right. that theory where the uh, corn is getting supported by beans and in general, um, all three are able to share resources in the same right. area. So uh, just to explain to anybody who hasn't heard that, most people have, um, if, if you've been looking at gardening stuff for a little while three sisters is kind of like a popular fun thing yeah. to do especially with that's kids. like the og of companion planting yeah <laughs> um for me three sisters does not work well um it just doesn't i think because um each thing needs to grow at such different times my beans have to be started before the corn and so they don't have anything to grow up because if, yeah. if you if you use companion uh, three sisters for pole beans which is kind of hard to right. do too they they won't they're they get a bit heavy um but I have tried it. It does work. It's just, you don't get perfect crops if the situation isn't just right. So with three sisters, I think, right. um, for our climates, I believe you start some things at different times. Is that how you handle that? Or do you start everything at once? Um, so I've actually, I've never done it with the pole beans, um, because those can usually use a, a little bit of shade in our area. Um, so I've done it with bush beans just as a nitrogen fixer that it wasn't really anything I intended to harvest, but you still, for a good companion, we want that nitrogen, living nitrogen to go back in the soil. Um, so I've done that. You, That's another okay. thing we should talk about. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. I, I, so um, yeah. uh, three sisters can be done with peanuts. They're, they're both uh, beans and peanuts are part of the legume family. Both do the same thing. I was going to try that this year. Peanuts is a great ground cover. It's one of my favorites. It's It just spreads itself out. It's just real cute. And even if it gets a little shaded out from the squash uh, leaves, it still hangs in there. It's still, I was going to try still it like, yeah, this season. Oh, hang out. We'll see how this goes. Um, yeah. So that one's really good too. Um, I completely forgot. I, I planted peanuts last year, but like, 
I'll forget in between seasons, which ones right. I like. And I'm like, oh yeah, peanuts. I totally forgot, even though I just harvested <laughs> them two months ago. Um, yeah. But that's a good one. And there's lots of nitrogen fixers. Those are my favorite. Like when we're talking ground covers and interplanting with some kind neighbors, peanuts, clovers. Um, right now, hairy vetch is, uh, for us, it's a native, people think it's a weed. Um, so it's native here. And so some people will just find it in their garden on accident, but people buy hairy vetch and seed out there. Um, their, their areas, their open areas with that. Um, if you have heard, I know you have, but if listeners have heard of green manure, you know, all mm -hmm. these nitrogen fixers are usually used as green manure too, um, which is just a, a way too off topic, but yeah, I definitely like, if you have extra space in your garden and you're thinking, well, what do I do with all this extra space? Any of your ground cover nitrogen fixer fixers or your green manure types are perfect. And honestly, the legume family covers year round seasons. I mean, you can right. pretty much just pull from them if things are too confusing, in my opinion. Right. I actually, this is another good example of a way to use companion planting. So in California, I grow year round. As far as like a crop rotation that most people think of as a crop rotation, where like one year it's this and the next year the bed is something different. I don't have time for that. Right. Like I always have something moving the beds in, if I have a bed that's totally empty, like I screwed something up. Um, so I use companion planting as my way to crop rotate. So I always have a nitrogen fixture. Just like you said, there's some sort of legume family that can be your nitrogen fixer, um, all year round. So there's always that. Um, and then I'm going to rotate through things that pull different nutrients. But from a crop rotation standpoint, I'm going to interplant them all and let it just work itself out <laughs> instead of focusing like, okay, this bed is one thing. And then now it has to change. It's just constantly a living crop rotation. And once people understand kind of who works with who a little bit better, mm -hmm. um, it's really easy if you have a gap. To say, okay, I know how to fill that with one with one right. thing. It's not just that it's not as, yeah, it's not as difficult. Um, and so yeah, when you're year on growing, I do have one empty bed, so I'm like, oh, I feel a little guilty. But we had that freeze, so <laughs> like I'm like, yeah. ah, it's fine. Um, <laughs> so I, I mean, I did have to replant, but before that, I didn't have any empty spots um, other than whatever I was clearing and about to replant. And I had, oh gosh, like. I had last year's onions that would never bulb still hanging out and I popped in um, full size. I, I uh, started inside some Brussels sprouts and then I popped in uh, direct sown beets in between. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I had like some zinnias and whenever those finally just keeled over, I tossed out some dill seed. Um, you know, you, you can always have a little something and I didn't yes. interplant the dill because it froze before I had a chance to do that. But like, there was a, there was a game plan there, you know, I was right. going to pull out a few of the dill, move, you know, move things out of the way or, or transplant them somewhere else. And so I really think that as you get more and more comfortable, um, not just companion planting, but thinking through kind of year round gardening or taking every opportunity, um, to use the garden, or it, even if, even if, you don't have the time to take care of a garden. If you can just get behind a cover crop mm -hmm. and just think, okay, I don't want to have bare soil. I want to have something growing all the time. Have a cover crop in your back pocket. Keep some seeds on the shelf, you know, for that time period. Toss them out, walk away. Usually the cover crops take care of themselves. And that'll at least keep your soil microbes um, connected to your plants and happy. It'll make sure that you're still watering your plants. And if you don't have natural rainfall, you'll at least remember to water and keep that soil healthy. Um, and it'll at least set you up for the next mm -hmm. season when you are ready to garden again, I guess, more seriously. But again, if you're implementing all of these tools and tricks of companion planting, you shouldn't have to work that hard at gardening. You shouldn't have to get back right. into it. Um, right. It should be as much work as tossing the cover crop out and walking away just mm -hmm. with a few different types of plants. Yeah. That's what I'm kind of thinking. I, I hope other people feel the same way about companion planting. I hope that even if they don't have the experience, I hope that there's something in this episode 
that just turned the switch on and, mm -hmm. and made people more open to that idea. Um, let's finish with, uh, there's a lot of container gardeners running around, um, which is very intimidating. I don't like to container garden, but <laughs> um, there is a, a way to companion plant with container gardening. Uh, have you heard of uh, Thriller, Filler, and Spiller? Yes. Or yeah. So let's let's chat about some like maybe create an example together for a container garden that companion plants using the Thriller, Filler, Spiller from ornamental planting. Okay. So I actually do that for my raised garden beds, which are five by 15. Yeah. <laughs> so I do that on like Gidormo scale, but yes, I, for a container plant, you can adapt it to anything. So I would. So, so real quick. So, thr depends. so thrillers always yeah. the taller, bigger, it's usually in, in a upright. pot. It's usually one thing, right? But it's upright. It's tall. It's out of the way. The focal point. Yeah. yeah. Fillers are going to be literally just filling the space. And then um, mm -hmm. spillers are hanging, hanging down They're They're trailing. Right. Um, so what are some thrillers that you like that are edible? I have a couple up my sleeve, but I'm gonna let you take the lead. Oh, that would be like for a small container. Uh, mm. I mean, you know, it could be a three, it could be three foot section, but, but not a row crop of just a single. So, oh. You're going to have to tell me what okay. you've got. So I, I would totally do a, like a, a trellis. Oh, artichoke interesting. It's like if you had only, if you could only do one plant, artichoke works as a, as a thriller, but I like the trellis idea as a backdrop. Yeah, see, I would trellis. So um, yeah, for a rectangular, trellis is good. Not edible, but I love ornamental cabbage for a thriller, thriller in a potted situation like that they're actually um, gorgeous and they're cold hardy switch, ornamental kale switch chard oh yeah i like the kale is yeah good. yeah the kale um like the dinosaur kale or any of the, like that gets really tall um and kind of like tree branchy yeah those are cool they have it yeah there is an ornamental cabbage i think that's what it's called if, if you don't want to go super tall swiss chard is not bad um that's not so bad um but i mean you could even do that with a uh a nice pepper plant if it was if it oh, started yeah. bigger okay so what about some fillers um i like green onions yeah which i mean you could fit a lot or just like kind of disperse them give you a little diversity in there love green onions um I'm trying to think. I usually do like my containers are like kitchen garden. So I want anything that I can grab easy to cook. Um, so almost like a cilantro, a parsley, herbs are going to be great fillers. And then, and your spillers at the same time, your other, like your thyme and your oregano will spill over the front. The um, tiny, the tiny flowers, like um, if you need to do a little winter showing, you could do some pansies. Those are edible. I don't know that mm. I would eat them. <laughs> <laughs> but you could. Um, I'm trying to think what else. Uh, Even like a mountain nasturtium. Lettuces yeah, ooh, are lettuce. good. Nasturtium. Go. Nasturtium's we're good. thinking too. We're being like super plannerty and thinking way too far into this. Yeah, I know. Lettuce, it's it's like it just needs to be really simple. Answer. Yeah. Um, and, and with that said, lettuce spinach, probably works. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm we're thinking of like all these. <laughs> I'm wondering if root crops, because in a pot, you'd have so much deep soil. Could root crops work? They probably could. Um, yeah, like if, a feet radish. If they got started a little bit earlier so that the spillers didn't crowd them out, that might work. Yeah. It might work. Um, I know that there's a lot of things. I think I grow too many large plants. I don't think as much I do about too. the... Um, okay. <laughs> so, so spillers, I, the herbs are perfect for that. I love yes. rosemary or like the, the, does time spill for you? It doesn't for me. If I plant it on the edge, it does. It would yeah, creep bit. over. I mean, just a little bit. It's not going to be yeah. full blown, but it's going to climb the edge a little bit. Um, I have done, uh, in my raised rings for the citrus, I will do, Flowers is my filler. I actually treat my citrus as filler, filler, spiller um, on accident just to do something with this space. So I'll do flowers as my filler 
any kind, doesn't matter to me, uh, small or big. And then um, I prefer marigolds, it's much tidier, but the zinnias were kind of fun this year. And then for the spiller, um, snow peas, um, it doesn't matter, you know, what mm -hmm. they are. I've done squash just to see what would happen. Um, it was ridiculous, obviously, but like, <laughs> I, it, you know, I'm it really it. spilled. Uh, <laughs> I did I pumpkins like that one time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I've definitely loved the herbs. The herbs on the side have been my yeah. favorite uh, spiller. And then anything, I mean, my carrot uh, greens get in my way. So I kind of don't mind those on the edge of a planter just so they can kind of flop and and mm -hmm. move. Um, but yeah. I just think it's really interesting. So you talked about the thriller filler and spiller with your citrus. That is inevitably in a whole nother example of companion planting and fruit tree guilds. Yeah. That, I mean, that's a whole nother. Yeah. <laughs> that could be a whole other episode. Right. But <laughs> companion planting is all around you, whether you realize it or not, it's, it's everywhere. Yeah. So I think it's less scary than it needs to be once you realize that literally everything is companion planted. Yeah. No, it really is. I mean, in, I think about it less in my own job um where i'm designing with plants but mm -hmm. the theory is still there i have to pick plants that work together if i have a desert plant and a tropical plant together they have different resources think something's going to die because i'm going to care for one and the other one's going to suffer right. as a result and so like you have to, you know companion planting can be as simple as that if, if anybody's listening to this and has not tried companion planting, it'd be so easy based on our Thriller Filler Spiller just a second ago to run over to the local nursery and yeah. make up a pot for yourself and just feel mm -hmm. out how much fun that is and have some fun with it. You know, add in flowers, mm -hmm. add in different textures, colors, and then think of your whole garden as Thriller Filler Spiller the, the right. whole time as you play with textures and, and play with the different colors um, and keep in mind all your different insects see colors differently than you do. Yes. Um, so having the variety of colors gives you a guarantee, or at least you have the range of colors, gives you a guarantee that you're attracting a little bit of everything. So yeah. definitely. Okay. So our takeaways from this episode, just try it. Yes. <laughs> you got a small just field, just try off. it today. <laughs> Go out right now, unless your store's closed. And then, um, Think about attracting more than any of the other topics that we talked about. Focus on attracting first because it's the simplest uh, simplest goal that you can yeah. actually achieve easily. And most of the attractors are gorgeous and useful. Um, and there's a secondary use out of them that you can take advantage of. So start there and just start really, really simply. Oh, and third takeaway, um, don't go buy any beneficial insects from the store today. Don't do that. Yeah, please. You're not, you're not ready. Don't, you're not don't ready. get me down that rant. <laughs> <laughs> don't go don't you don't get to, me down that You rant. never need to do it if your garden is in good shape. You should never, ever need to buy your own insects. That's that's like buying your own water when you have a well. You don't have to do it. It's fine. <laughs> you, you don't need to go to the store and buy a bottle. Um, but... If your garden is is healthy, if it's if it has its own, um, oh gosh, what, what word am I searching for? If it's if it's actually natural, right? It can yeah. be as organized as you want, but if it's actually interacting with nature in the right way, um, you should have less interaction with it, more crop yield, yes, healthier soil. Your plants should be healthier. Your insect population should be in control, meaning you will have insects, but they're going to be more of the good kind, right? You're going to, yeah. you're going to get hit in the face with something flying. That's okay. Um, hopefully <laughs> it's a bee. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> even your wasps are okay. Don't freak out. Like they are, do they yeah. do good things too. Um, but you're going to have so many benefits, so many positives, and you're going to visit your garden less and less, unless you really want to, uh, all right. of us out there with our cell phone cameras, right? making Instagram <laughs> a reality. Um, but the theory is if life gets in the way, your garden will still be there for you if you've treated it right to begin with and let it do its own thing to some extent with, with some with some yeah. knowledge behind the uh, the madness. Any final thoughts? Absolutely. Just that the abundance is totally obtainable and companion planting is the key to 
do it with interfering less. Yeah. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. No, no. Yeah. It, okay. it, it makes sense. Um, if you have any questions, uh, I'm going to talk all about um, Spencer at, at the end of this and not embarrass her, but you can reach <laughs> out to me or Spencer. You're welcome. All the contact information uh, to reach out to her will be on the episode description. You are going to be able to ask questions. Um, in stories on Instagram is a really great way to connect when either one of us have question boxes. Um, we also post ideas on, uh, uh, you know, what is it called? Reels, <laughs> reels <Yeah>. and actual <laughs> posts, you know, we'll, we'll pop in little ideas. And so that's a great place to ask questions, but you can just direct message to, um, anything else you want to add in about, um, where, where you're going, what's happening with you and your, uh, website or Instagram coming up the next few months. In the next few months, we will be having a spring launch, like a little relaunch to the website. Um, things have changed so much in a good way since I started this website and the account that I hear people want this companion plant knowledge and the bug knowledge. That's what people are missing in a way that's easily digestible and attainable. So it's coming. You're awesome. welcome to follow along. We'd love to have you. <laughs> awesome. So this is a perfect introduction for that too. Just to, you know, this yeah. is a, a light introduction, a light kickoff, and then to understand and digest a lot more, those little chunks through time are going to really be the key. So thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed the episode and feel inspired to companion plant this coming season. For more ways to learn from Spencer, you can visit her website or follow her on Instagram. All of her contact information can be found in the episode description. To learn more about companion planting, listen to the podcast episodes that follow today's episode. In future episodes, I will include specific combinations of companions that work well together and why, which plants do not play nice as neighbors, how to plan and plant out your garden using companion planting techniques in some detail, and more insect discussion. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, follow along on Instagram, and subscribe to my YouTube channel to continue growing as an intuitive gardener with me.